0: This Go- is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It's great to be with you again, David. How are you today?
2: I'm doing great. Uh, got the garden in, and uh, we're ready to. Uh, it is
1: exciting to have the garden in the ground, isn't it?
2: It is, it is. Now, if we can just get some rain that's coming over from Texas.
1: Well, let's just hope we get a little bit of that. It was kind of vaguely drizzling, but I don't even want to call it rain. I, so much so that I, I went and watered this morning just in case. But uh, I still have uh, 13 flats of tomatoes to plant. <sighs> <laughs> They're just not big enough yet. For some reason, they just didn't get big enough inside in the greenhouse. So. Mm.
2: Well, at least we're going. That's better than uh, last week.
1: Better than Better than last week. And I did have, I noticed I have a part of my garden where it gets floody sometimes. And I looked down there today, and there was about... 30 what appears to be gourds growing there, from and I grew gourds there last year, but I didn't get rid of all of them. Apparently, they have sprouted by themselves, so I'm going to be plucking those out of the ground. Today, David, we have a special guest today on the Immigration Hour, and occasionally we do this, um, probably not as much as our guests, as our listeners would like us to, so they will to hear me drone on, but today we have Alan Orr from Washington, D.C. joining us. Alan, how are you
2: doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for allowing me to join today,
1: Chuck. Oh, it's great to have you with us, Alan. Now, I've known Alan for a long time, probably somewhere around 18 years, 19 years or so. Uh, And uh, I knew Alan when he was a very new immigration lawyer, and I wasn't that old. Uh, I mean, Alan's not that much younger than me. Um, But uh, I followed his career with interest over the years. And, uh, Alan, you're doing something very interesting this year that I've kind of been pushing you to do for a number of years. So tell us what you're going to be doing or what you are doing.
2: Well, Chuck, I'm running for secretary, uh, a national secretary of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Well, so now, I'm trying you, to follow in your footsteps. Well,
1: that's great. And you have had your psychological exams to verify that you're not crazy to do that, correct?
2: I've, I've had the exams. <laughs> I know that I'm not crazy. I want to give back to an organization that has given a lot to me. So well, it's
1: time. I do appreciate you doing it. I think the organization needs people like you who have broad experience, uh, both uh, from a practice perspective, big firm, outside uh, corporate, and then on your own as a solo practitioner or a small firm, uh, as well as the broad experience you have in the field of immigration. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about today. Tell us what you're doing today. What's, what's Allen or Immigration all about?
2: So my core of the core of Immigration is compliance work, um, which is really I-9, E-Verify, LCA compliance. Um, I also help a number of companies with day-to-day visa work, and family petitions, and we dedicate 10% of our time to pro bono work. That is Um, awesome. But what we really try to focus on is making sure that companies and lawyers are getting it right on the compliance so that we can sort of move forward with positive immigration reform by having a positive showing when audits happen to companies.
1: Well, Alan, wait a second. I thought Obama wasn't enforcing the law. I've I've been listening to all these court cases that Obama just lets people walk in the country, companies can do whatever they want. And what, what kind of compliance work could there possibly be right now?
2: Well, there's compliance all over the place. Um, as anyone in immigration knows, that uh, immigration instituted a $500 fraud fee with a number of applications, and the government has been putting that money to work. Uh, you can go to the ICE webpage and see the number of companies that are receiving audits uh, from ICE for compliance with I-9, and that's really important to just the general U.S. employer um, that they're being audited for things that they really haven't been trained for. Um, and then in addition to that, you can also see that there are a number of just site audits, um, inspections from, from people all over the field. So the law is being enforced, and that's really just a misunderstanding wait, of what's Wait happening. a
1: second. Are you saying that somebody is lying to us about Obama not enforcing the law?
2: I think the misconception is perceived from individuals who have always been here for a long time, who might have some equities, are not gone. And that may be seen as non-enforcement, but that's really not the issue that we're sort of addressing. We're sort of addressing the issue at the border and the issues with companies. And if you sort of look under Obama administration, he's actually stepped up in all of those areas of compliance, compliance at the border, and compliance against companies.
1: We certainly notice that with our clients, um, including the. the I, it seems in the last few months a real increase in the random auditing of HS and LVs. How do you handle? How do you typically handle those with your clients?
2: I think each one is a case-by-case in the situation. And the problem with the government is they always make new regulation or new law after the inspection. So therefore, they go in and they learn something about a company, and then they come back and they sort of think, well, maybe that's not right, um, instead of sort of promulgating a new rule. And what you sort of find now in the H-1B compliance world um, that I sort of deal with a lot is sort of the wage analysis, where the companies have sort of done some LCAs and selected a wage, and then the government comes back, and they don't agree with them for whatever reason. Um, and it's a very complex area, but the government sort of has this new thing that no H-1B worker is a level one worker. And yeah, that's problematic. Uh, that,
1: that's, that's an interesting point, because it, we've been living with the uh, prevailing wage requirement uh, okay. since 1990. Uh, when I, when uh, IMAC 90 came along and they developed the whole labor condition application process. And they have for decades now, because that, that's, it's uh, 15, to 25 years that we've had that. You can go in and you can either take a prevailing wage given to you by the government so you could wait in line for your wage, which right now, what, taking four months or so to get a wage four from months. the government? So nobody's going to wait for a wage from the government. Or you can go to their official survey because they do publish their survey, right? Um, right. The OES, the Occupational Outlook, uh, Outlook Occupational Employment Survey, which has somewhere around what eight hundred jobs or so, eight hundred for you to
2: be specific.
1: Yeah, uh, and of course there's way there's far more four more jobs than that in the United States. Uh, so you have to kind of crosswalk whatever your job title and duties are into one of their narrow areas, and then they give you four different levels of wages. Now, what what are those four levels, and why are they jerking us around in the first level?
2: Well, I think. The, the real problem is <laughs> at the essence of if we sort of talk about how our, our our business world works is that they're telling companies what the wages are when in generally the market determines that and the company determines that so that's really problematic and it's always behind so they're back-reporting, meaning they're taking information from last year's wages and they're applying it to this year. And in our economy, where you can have a year earlier that was a, a, a very good year, and then you can have several bad years, that's not the best best analysis.
1: So so and, really, the wages aren't always on an upward trajectory, trajectory, right. except so, except in the government context.
2: Yeah, sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down, and sometimes they just make catch-all categories for all jobs, which means the range is very wide, and you might get the medium range for a job that's kind of on the low end. And the problem with just having four wage levels is that I don't know any employer that just has four wage levels, (laughs) right? Wages depend on a lot of different factors about that employee. So therefore, it sort of removes the perspective of reality and sort of says you have to fit into one of these boxes on these arbitrary titles of if someone is a beginner and an intermediate or supervising. Some things are very clear and other things aren't as clear. And well, that's the way
1: really We do a lot of work in the computer field, as I'm sure you do too, with our clients. Mm-hmm. And you have a guy just out of college. He just got his bachelor's degree. He has no experience. That seems to me to be an entry-level wage, right? Mm-hmm. You would, that would be simple. Uh, but my experience teaches me from audits and from other uh, processes with the government is well. Wait a second. Let's. What are his duties? All oh, those duties. Those are those are advanced duties. He. That's not an entry level job. But for the company, it clearly might be. And then they come in and say, "No, you're not paying enough for that salary."
2: Right. I think. It, I think it's even more exemplified when someone has a master's degree, and let's say in a mm-hmm. security job where everybody has a master's degree. Right? And they come in and say, well, this person has a master's degree. Surely this isn't an entry-level job. Well, everybody in the law field has a JD, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's still and, an entry-level job. Exactly. So that's and, really not the best analysis to apply you know, we as to whether a job is entry-level or not based on education alone, specifically when people don't have real-world experience.
1: We saw this actually initially many years ago in the 90s for doctors. Well, there are four wage levels for doctors m d s so you have the new grads all the way up to the guys with ten years or twenty years experience and they literally took to position at least on labor certifications that there was no such thing as an entry level job for an m d and yet, why do you have the wage if there 's no entry level job for the m d it 's just remarkable, and so the enforcement that you 're seeing as part of this. How do you, you see this? Just as a result of the Obama administration being more pro labor, and if, if we had a GOP administration, it would go backwards. It would be less 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 enforcement. Or do you see the GOP actually taking this to a new level? Should they get into power?
2: I think that I think it's a combination of things. I think it's the GOP and a little bit of just the, the concept that these are fraud. Everything is fraud. So I feel like the government is, or individuals within the government may, may be seeking to find. What they're looking for, and that's really the problem, right? When you set out with 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 already the understanding that this is fraud, then you will undoubtedly be able to make an argument for fraud. You know, Um, as someone who's a philosophy major, I can argue any side of any issue at any given time. (laughs) So, therefore, it becomes a little bit about the person's perspective, and if the government's perspective is these companies are doing something wrong, when the company has been working on regulations for decades regarding this area of the law and not right being specific it becomes problematic because that means the company did the best they could with the attorney they made the best decision they could based on the wages that they had at their company and their their own sort of skills and then the government says no i don't agree but the real problem that sort of exists there is it opens the door for them to come in and sort of look at everything the company's doing right and that's sort of just inviting someone into your personal affairs right if someone looks long enough there is something you didn't do right Right, And that becomes part of the foundation of sort of saying, oh, there's fraud. And that's really the problem that I sort of see is that it comes in on such a simple issue. Let's look at this one person had an LLC violation or, or someone complained, and then they're looking at all the LCAs for the last three years for the company, sort of on a, on a chase. And the time and money that's expended into it, this is very expensive.
1: And Super also, expensive. doesn't it also make it hard for lawyers? I mean, the reality is not that anybody has any sympathy for us, but how can you properly advise your client knowing that they can move that little ball to the other red cup later on if they want to. Right. That's
2: exactly right. Uh, and, this you, is... and actually, it, it, removing the complexities of H-1B, let's go to something that every American employer deals with, just a simple I-9 form.
1: Right? You mean the form that every American has filled out as in, in the United States, and whenever they work, wherever they work, we'll have to fill out as well.
2: Exactly. Such a simple form they took from one page, and they made it two. <laughs> Added additional requirements additional administrative fees.
1: <laughs> and
3: yet, and and yet they also took audit, away documents. This form, and
2: right? they took
1: away Different documents places. you could use Redate. to verify your employment. <laughs>
2: right? And, and then you sort of have to figure it out, <laughs> for the most part, what you did or did not do wrong on something that, honestly, um, you know, with some of the technology we have now, really isn't the best use of an employer's time.
1: Well, the reality is, why isn't there an electronic system in place, government-wide, to fill out an I-9? Exactly. Why are we still filling this out on paper? It makes no economic sense. Why isn't it tied automatically into E-Verify as part of a, an opt-in program for those employers who want to do it? It should just all be one seamless. Now, I, I have no doubt that this will become, and whenever we have immigration reform, E-Verify is obviously going to become mandatory at some right. point in time. But it should be electronic. It should not be something the employer is required to do. And frankly, at some point, it should tie into the tax system. And say okay, we're going to fill out your tax forms. All this stuff's going to be one seamless system, instead of making an employer jump through a massive number of hoops. Because all it seems to be doing right now is creating a pot of money for ICE, so they can You're come right. in and they can find employers. We have one employer we're working with right now who literally lost money every, and it wasn't one of these tax gimmicks. They lost money each of the last four years during the recession. Right. and ice now wants their pound of flesh that simply doesn't exist the company would rather close their doors than pay a huge payment to ice that they simply have no way of paying all because they they did i9s but they didn't do them correct they had paperwork mistakes um, things that oh I didn't check that box oh I didn't check the box on one person on that person I didn't put their maiden name in on that box I, I looked at the wrong document and it's it's affecting companies and U.S. employers negatively because ICE is in the process of not is in the process of making money rather than helping employers
2: right because the problem is enforcement is seen as punishment not as just checking out to see what's going on. Right. right? And, the, not, and more get the more It looks like you're really enforcing something to individuals. And, and, and if, you're exactly the, if this is a first-time
1: violation for you, why aren't you going, okay, look, you made a mistake here. Yes, you made a lot of mistakes, but here's what you did wrong. We're going to come back in a year, make sure you're doing it right. Okay, you're good to go. That's how they used to do it. But now because these fines, again, going back to the whole idea of the minimum amount of minimum wage, their minimum fine is $100. Right. When is the last time you saw a $100 fine? It doesn't appear to exist.
2: Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. Um uh, uh, that's going to be a good argument. Let's take a let's take a break here on the immigration now we'll be back, back in a minute now with more with Eleanor.
3: tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar. The Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Traemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a 404-816-8611. A 404-816-8611 al www.immigration.net
1: With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verifying your business or... Help and how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national. Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200, or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net.
0: You're listening to America's WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. We've already had our garden minute, David, today, so we're in good shape with that. And we've been talking to Alan Orr about some of the enforcement stuff, but Alan, I want to go back to you for a second. Uh, this isn't the first time you've actually run for office in a bar association, is it?
2: It is not. Tell is me,
1: because you, you you actually bring something very different that a lot of new ALA secretaries don't ever bring with them, and that's leadership in other bar associations, to give perspective. Tell me about your past. What have you done on this before?
2: So for... Um Originally, I worked at a very large firm, and they very, really
1: very large firm would be
2: Baker McKenzie,
1: Baker which would be the, the and they largest. Really encouraged
2: firm. us to get involved in bar associations. <laughs> One because it helps you sort of network, it builds your profile, it also sort of gives you a skill set that you probably wouldn't get at a firm, right? And so, the organization that I sort of chose to work with um, is in DC. It's called Gay Law, and now it's called the LGBT Bar. Um, And when I originally joined the board, the purpose of me joining the board was because they had a a, a lack of minority attorneys being active in the organization. And they knew that I had a network because I went to Morehouse College in in Atlanta and to Howard in in, uh, Washington, D.C., and that I was very linked to the community, that I would be able to sort of find individuals who would be interested in getting involved in the organization, right? Because it's important for me that every organization I work in has some type of diversity even in a minority status. There's all type of diversity to this, financial diversity, there's background diversity, there's a lot of things that sort of look at in diversity. But for me right now, one of my key factors has always been, let's make sure that we have a variety of what we call the United States in the room so that we can have a conversation about what's really needed. And that was really my focus originally. Upon doing that, they selected me, because I had a financial background, to be the treasurer of the organization. And I served in that position for six long years. And during that year, my goal was to make sure the organization was financially sound so that if the economy shut down or the firm stopped giving us money, we'd be able to survive for our purpose. Because during that time, we were looking at a lot of battles on the field, which was don't ask, don't tell, and also gay marriage. So we wanted to make sure that we had the funding to sort of address these issues nationally because we're in the District of Columbia, so we kind of have that network of of lawyers, and also locally, and it was super important to us to be funded after that accomplishment uh they decided that i deserved to be president and during my time as president i sort of worked on sort of bringing other minorities into the organization and i got an understanding of you know what what a true board leadership involves right because sometimes i think people confuse a hard worker with leadership and they're not exactly the same thing no they're not a good leader does work hard but a good leader knows how to delegate appropriately and to applaud the individuals who are doing things and, and does not always need to be in the spotlight, right? It's sort of making sure that everyone feels involved and accomplished. And that's what I sort of want to bring to Ayla. Because right now, ALA, I mean, as of its announced yesterday, the executive director is leaving. And but we're sh- on the cusp of immigration reform. And I think it's really important that we sort of have a broad perspective of people ready and connected to sort of help push these these in, this through. And that's sort of what I... Hope to represent for
1: AILA. Well, I, I'm excited to have you running for this because I think you, you bring a perspective, one that we've never had, uh, because we've never had an African American leader in ALA. I think you're the first elected director of the organization that's African American. I am. Um, and as far as I know, we've never had a gay, gay, gay man or woman as a leader of ALA. I could be wrong about that back in the day. You're but
2: also correct about that. I think I'm, I'm
1: pretty way, sure correct please. about that. And I think it's about time to bring some more diversity to a little leadership uh, than we've had in recent years and that we have coming up. And I'm excited uh, for this election. And I think uh, I think you're going to win. And I think a lot of people recognize the contributions you've made and can make going forward. Plus, you're still a relatively young man. Uh, so you have a, a, a great future uh, as part of this. Now, I will tell you, Alan, ha- having been through the AILA leadership process, uh, you get elected to be secretary and you move up every year should nobody run against you. It's a long seven years, <laughs> so as long as you're prepared for that, I think you're I, in great shape.
2: I am, and I think the other thing besides the the diversity issues I think are important, but also the diversity backgrounds that I have with that's
1: what I love issues. about you is that you have you that you're not just a drone in a big firm. Right. You have other leadership experience, which is vitally important to bringing in the diversity opinion. That is Aila. Aila is forty percent on at least the last numbers I saw was solo practitioners. Right. Which means it was 60% not solo practitioners. Some of them, let's say 10 or 15% are, are in the public sector. Another 30 or 40% are in, are in multi-lawyer or big firms. And it's important to be able to bring all parts of ALA together, not just talking to one of those. Exactly.
2: And I also think as we sort of galvanize our push, um, you know, I've been in the Beltway for a long time, <laughs> and I know the difference between rhetoric and reform. And I think that, uh, you know, the president's executive action right now and the stalemate that is sort of happening between a state and the president should sort of exemplify why, even if Hillary Clinton says her heart's in the right place, it takes a little bit more than that. So I have sort of an understanding of grassroots movements and elections and how politicking works and, and sort of making a plan, because what the immigration movement really lacks, right, are the correct people in the House Mm-hmm. to make immigration reform happen the districts just aren't in our favor right now right um and the, or the people elected in the districts are not in our favor i don't even want to make it a partisan argument i just think that that the way that things are sort of grafted right now even if hillary clinton is elected won't change the house which even if the senate remains the same doesn't really lead to reform so what do we need to do to sort of change that And part of my life has been dedicated to civil rights, and I see immigration as a civil right because it's people, right? Every immigration movement that has ever happened in the United States is also related to the civil rights movement. It were people who were here who didn't have the same rights as other people that were here who became whole through Congress, right? And you see see these,
1: these parallels all along the process.
2: Exactly. And for someone to tell me that we're a nation of law, okay, great, I know that. We're also a nation that can change laws, right? And so... Great. Understand the foundation that you start with. Yes, we have laws, and maybe that law needs to be changed. We've done it before many times over. Let me fight the cases.
1: When <laughs> laws don't work, we've talked about this on the show before. When laws don't work, we change them. Exactly. The 55-mile-an-hour speed limit comes right to mind. It was a law that did not work. There was no reason to put it into place. Because it was an overreaction to the energy crisis. Nobody obeyed it. Didn't make all those criminals, although it did. If you were in the South, because Georgia, for example, speeding tickets a misdemeanor. Right. But it didn't make us bad people. The law was just bad, and we're no. We're better off today without that law in place. And we have a lot of immigration laws like that that are just bad laws. Okay. They make no economic societal sense. Um, and you know, you I, you brought up a good point. You talked about Hillary Clinton winning, but you didn't talk about Jeb Bush winning. Uh, and I think I think you're on to something here. Is unless the rhetoric does change that comes out of the GOP, it will be Hillary Clinton who wins this election. That's my prediction. That's right.
2: I'm well, kind of partisan that. Way. Also, it could be correct. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, and that comes
1: from a Republican. I think you know who else agrees with me is Lindsey Graham. Uh, right. This week, Lindsey Graham came out yesterday. Lindsey Graham says that you know we're not going to win unless we change our rhetoric. Unless we talk differently about this issue, George Jeb Bush clearly gets it. He talks about losing the primary to win the general election, but that's, right. that's not who the media is going to focus on because that's not sexy. That's not cool. That just is, that doesn't generate and gin up anger and viewers for television. Uh, whereas people that come out and say psychotic things like uh, uh, Ted Cruz or, or Scott Walker now joining joining hands with the Tanton movement. Uh, those types of things, I think, is what you're going to generate voters in the primaries, which you're going to turn off more Latinos and Asians, who are the new, ch- really, I think, the changing influence in American politics.
2: Right. And and the and the major thing about this, because I'm learning this from Ayla right now, does it matter how strong your position is, how good you are, how well you known, right? If individuals don't vote, things don't change.
1: And that's true in Ayla. Exactly. Ayla gets less than. Twenty twenty five percent of its members who vote. That's crazy. Your vote, you actually make a difference. Most national elections. Now, if you if you go way back in time to when I ran the first time for ala president, uh, I was nominated along with Kathleen Walker. So it was like you. You were nominated with another individual, uh, and Kathleen and I got together. And at the time, that time in our lives, I didn't know Kathleen that well. Uh, I'd only met her a couple times before. Mm-hmm. But uh, neither one of us were in a position where we had time to campaign. Uh, and so we, we called each other. I called her, and she, and we talked, and we said, hey, let's go ahead and just send one. This was back in the day when you had to send a fax out to all the members before email. Mm-hmm. Let's pay jointly for one fax. It'll have a page, for, a page for you, a page for me, say this is all we're doing. We're going to donate all the other money we would have spent on the election to the, then the, now what is it is today, the American Immigration Council, then was ALF, and that was it. I lost that election by 40 votes. Every vote counts, and then I every won the vote. next year. But every vote counts, and and I always encourage my, my own attorneys, the, my chapter, to vote because it makes a huge difference about who's going to lead this association going forward.
2: Right. And the same thing with national, local, and federal elections. Right. Everyone should vote. It, you
1: know, I, I speak a lot on uh, in the community forums here in Georgia, uh, mostly Latino focused. And here in Georgia, for example, there are 150,000 or so permanent resident Latinos who are currently eligible for citizenship. Right. A hundred now, Georgia has 8 million people. But you can win elections with 150,000. You will change elections. There's one city here in North Georgia called Gainesville, which is almost 50, maybe now be 50% Latino. There's not a single Latino on the city council. Not a single one. And yet, why? Because people don't vote. They don't think it's important. Yet, if you can convince enough people to vote, and African Americans showed this power... Um, starting in the 60s, and they realized our vote has power, and they fought for that vote. Now, a lot of the folks in the GOP have been trying to take that vote away by limiting early elections, limiting the ability to vote late at night, uh, limiting the the scope of, uh, of absentee ballots, but that vote is power. So even with the limited power to vote you can change elections. So I think part of part of our ability as lawyers is not just to legalize people or give people green cards or bring them into the country successfully, but to incorporate them into the American system, the most important part of which is to vote. Exactly. Exactly. Because until that happens, we're going to keep getting what we get. Uh, now, I, I think what you, one of the parts you brought up was very important. You talked about the House. No matter who wins the next election, it is almost a certainty that the GOP will be controlled by the Republicans. Absolutely. And that's because of gerrymandering. That's not going to change until 2022. It's exactly. just not going to. The Republicans did a brilliant job, brilliant job in 2010, and really starting in 2008. While right. they were losing the last election, they were winning local elections. Exactly. Local elections led to county elections, which led to state elections, and they controlled now 33 of the state houses. And that allows them to control reapportionment, which allows them to control the United States, uh, the United States House of Representatives. Uh, I do That's think right. the Senate is going to flip back to, to the Democrats in this next election. But that House is a key. And we will not have reform unless we can get on the same page with Republicans in the House. Saying, what do you need? Here's what we want. How can we make this work together?
2: Right. 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 Because it's my legislative understanding, which is pretty strong, <laughs> that any bill... That generates funding must start in the House. So even the immigration bill that was generated in the Senate, even if the House took it to the floor, there would still be problematic stuff.
1: Right, uh, because there was funding in that bill. And this is what, this is what the, tr- the truly tragic part about this is. One, I blame Obama for this because he could have right. done immigration reform in his first four years, first two years in office, right. when he had control of everything, um, and he could have compromised with Republicans. On some immigration issues in the House But you know he, he just didn't do it He never even presented his own plan Which I think is the job of the President Whether right. it's the President of ALO Or the President of the United States Your job is to present plans and ideas It's not to let others work on those plans and ideas That you vaguely uh, talk about in speeches
2: Right And not to miss the opportunities Because I think that's the real thing That becomes the Democratic problem Right mm-hmm. That you wait on consensus Until consensus doesn't matter and I think uh, the GOP doesn't have that same issue. No, they, they right. do not. Alan, exactly. we're going to take a break platform. here. We're sticking to the platform.
1: And, and we're gonna, it's like the contract on America, contract with America, sorry, whatever that was. We're going to take a break here on Americans' web radio immigration and will be right back.
3: Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración. Conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816861. A las O visítenos al ww.immigration.net.
0: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
2: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. Learn strategies to protect you and your family in the age of Obamacare.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to the America's Web Radio's Immigration Hour. Now, David, this is still, I believe, the most listened to immigration podcast in the known universe. Is it not? It is, and uh, we're verifying that with Santa Claus as we speak. Sweet. Don't forget the Easter Bunny, because I think he has some insight on this as well. You got it. Awesome. We're back with Alan Orr, uh, immigration lawyer extraordinaire from Washington, D.C., and candidate for A.L.A. secretary. Now, uh, Alan, I want to ask you some some political questions, because we do politics on this show, too, uh, in the context of the candidates for president of the United States. Um, Who, in your view is presenting the most coherent strategy to win a national election from the GOP as well, it focuses on point. immigration, because that's well, all we I care mean, about is immigration here.
2: Jed yesterday right, made a good conversational piece about changing the minds of the party related to longevity of the party. So that puts him in a good place. Um, and I don't know... Yeah, it's, it's difficult right now to tell before the debates are, because the panel is so large.
1: <laughs> it's a lot of people, isn't it? Right? Rachel Maddow the other day had a panel of 21 people running for president.
2: So and it's and just, she forgot it's, a couple. Exactly. So I think it's it's interesting to see. And for me, being a reform Republican, uh, I want to see where they end up on the financial issue, right? Yep. Because immigration costs, deportation costs, detaining costs, and their financial and tax costs to local places.
1: And we're spending money we don't need to spend. Isn't that really what's happening with this enforcement idea? Exactly. Um, I just find it fascinating that the Republicans, who are supposedly fiscal conservatives, want to throw more and more money at border security without analyzing the effectiveness of what they're doing. I agree. It, does, it, it doesn't make it... I mean, I, I, part of the problem, from my perspective, and I'm here in the South, uh, is that immigration is new here. Uh, Alan, you're from Georgia. I am. Uh, you're from Valdosta. That's what I it accounts South. for your delightful Southern accent. Um, and people here didn't... When you were growing up in Valdosta, you could probably count the number of Latino kids on your left hand that were there all year long, right? There were none. There were none. And yet, if you went to Valdosta High School today... I'm going to assume there's a big population Latino.
2: There's a huge population,
1: uh, and that is because one, agriculture has grown significantly; two, African Americans have moved out of agriculture in many ways; uh, and three, the Olympics in Georgia was another big pull for the state. I remember right. I was just I had just been here a few years when we when we got the Olympics, and we're going to bring the world to Georgia. Well, they came.
2: They They, did. they just didn't go but, home. But also, like African Americans and gay and lesbian couples, uh, the South is an easier place to live for many people. Yeah. cost of living is low. Quality of life is high. So it's amazing that when you sort of look at where people live by the numbers, you will find that this population that can sort of, that is sort of under the law right now are all in these states that are opposing them.
1: It, it's fascinating. You see it in Alabama, which is, by the way, backed way off uh, of what's going on on their, on their, on their immigration um, enforcement issues. Uh, George itself, we passed this HB 87 bill three years ago now. The one part that we got declared unconstitutional went away, and the rest of it is basically unenforced. It was all about rhetoric and nothing about actual enforcement. Uh, but the national level, Obama, as you indicated earlier, has doubled down on enforcement – I guess in a bid to show that he's a tough guy and convince convince Congress, it was clearly a terrible strategy because no, he was it hasn't worked. <laughs> you no, know, it hasn't worked, and 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 he was never going to convince Republicans ever that he was an enforcement guy ever
2: right. until there was zero zero, until the numbers show zero, which I don't even know what that means.
1: And right. uh, now, so I want to go back to politics for a second. So Bush sure. comes out, he's talking about people can be persuaded. You got Rubio who continues to dance around the issue instead of just owning it. You've got Lindsey Graham, who's, you know, he's been historically really good on immigration, but he has zero chance of winning a national election.
2: Exactly.
1: Um, And uh, then you've got Scott Walker, who was for immigration reform before he was against it. Exactly. And now he's a Tanton acolyte, uh, which is appropriate since they're all from Wisconsin anyway. Uh, and then Rick Perry can be good or bad, depending on what mood he happens to be in. It's just fascinating. There are actually a goodly number of GOP guys out there who could be really good on immigration. Um, and I always harken back to Reagan. Uh, there, I was watching PBS on Sunday night, and there was a Reagan, I don't know, David, if you saw this, it was a Reagan uh, biopic on, it wasn't really a biopic, it was just a biography of, of Ronald Reagan and where he came from, and uh, they got to immigration. And they said, look, today, in 2015, Ronald Reagan would be kicked out of the Republican Party. Absolutely. Uh, he went on TV and he says, I believe in amnesty. I think amnesty and forgiveness is good. I think we can do this and make America stronger. Right. Yeah, boy, Good Christian principle. Exactly. This is how you get forgiven for stuff, right? It's the whole Jesus thing. And yet it's a bad thing. For example, you may have seen the video out of the South Carolina GOP caucus over the weekend. Uh, where they were talking about immigrants as rats and roaches, and to huge applause in the audience. Right. I mean, that's the kind of stuff. W- you, you could talk about winning back Latino voters, but then you do that. You well, know, the Latino voters—they're they're citizens. They're not. They don't care. Right. Oh, trust me, they care because they—that's their mom, that's their dad, it's their brother. Ninety uh, percent of Latinos know somebody who's undocumented in the United States. Uh, and, are, and many of them are family members. You can't talk negatively about them and expect them to be all over you, uh, thinking you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. But on the flip side, I don't trust Hillary Clinton as far as I can spitter on this issue.
2: Well, There's two big issues to, to realize. I mean, I think this is something that um, you know, the gay movement has said the best. People will die naturally. And those people, and the African Americans have learned as well, who hold these grudges, um, really need to consider their legacies. And I think the Latino community has looked at the numbers, and it's even better to show in California, and even in New York, in some districts that historically have been African American, are now sort of large percentages Latino. Right. Mm -hmm. And some um, Afro-Latino, which makes it quite interesting about, you know, even look at it. I think it's, I forget whose district it is. I think it may be Wrangell's district. That it sort of changed from an African-American district to a Latino district. Right. Mm -hmm. And sort of the concept of who should represent them in Congress. Right. A seat that's been held within the Black Caucus for a long time may now switch hands. And over time, that's something that America will have to deal with. So the concept becomes a little bit of what I think Jeb Bush was trying to say. You can change now and potentially win in the future. Or you can win now and absolutely lose in the future. Mm-hmm. Your choice.
1: Now, I think it's been interesting. You've seen, this is particularly from Jeff Sessions, the leading anti-immigrant in Congress today. He has been trying to uh, uh, racify um, the immigration issue between blacks and Latinos. Absolutely. Now, what is your take? I mean, you're African-American. What is your take absolutely. on that? Is that gonna work? Is that no, a good I strategy? Think I think terrible in strategy.
3: In some person.
2: places where, where there's confusion, right there's Mm -hmm. always a place to make division right but um, within this black lives matter it is black and brown lives matter and I'm actually also a board member of step Africa which is an organization that just took 10 um, African-American and Latino boys uh, abroad to sort of experience uh, being outside the United States because we know that when people are exposed to other things they learn about those other things and they're no longer afraid of them so that's really the concept of what is sort of happening with this divisive politics. Um, but there are organizations, such as the Black Immigration Coalition out of New York City, which I'm also a member of, that sits down with Latinos and African Americans and sort of builds a consensus, because we're all on a continuum, as I've said before. There are Dominicans who are Hispanic in nature, but are also African yep. and birthright. So therefore, the division becomes strong. And sort of the concept of minority politics, which is something within the gay movement is really galvanizing now that you've sort of seen after they sort of showed all the ambassadors, which were all white men, um, that we need to make sure that everybody's included at the table when we win, right? And so that African-American and Latinos are now looking at each other and saying, you know what, together we have enough power to change everything. Oh, absolutely. So... It's not working like it used to anymore. There's still the concept that, oh, my God, they took the job at McDonald's that my kid was going to have this summer, right? Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know what that means, really, right? A job's a job. If your kid had the best perspective, they would have gotten the job.
1: Well, that's, right? for, that's from of perspective that there's only X number of jobs. Exactly. Which is, it's compu- which is so anti-Republican it boggles my mind they're talking about it that way.
2: But here's the problem, Chuck, at the heart of that, because this is something I really want to speak to, to African Americans. If you sort of look at the numbers, of what businesses are and who's running businesses new immigrants from africa are owners while african americans are employees which means when foreign nationals come to this country they create companies and they run companies they don't work for individuals they're not looking to steal jobs right mm-hmm. african americans who are in this country who are educated in this country aren't then turning around and creating their own companies to run their companies to make those big game decisions about who to hire and those big advancements. That's the problem, right? That's the problem across the scale. If you look at all of those minority groups that are sort of this big threat, right? Over time, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Any of them, they come here and they create their own companies, right? Their own entrance into the job market. And that's what really needs to be at the heart of immigration is sort of saying, wait, are these people coming here and taking jobs? Or are they creating companies and creating jobs?
1: Well, from my perspective, now part of part of my free time, Alan, I spent as a pastor of a Spanish congregation in my church, yeah. and uh, I see what I see there. I don't see people looking for jobs. Exactly. I see people creating. I mean, I'm a, I, one of my counselors, the guy that I work very closely with, he was working as a manager of five five guys. Five five guys. One guy, he was managing five five guys. He quit. Said, "I'm going to start my own place, create my own job, just like that. Just walked away from a decent paying job." Uh, could create his own business, employ other people. I mean, that, that's, that's my dad's parents, my grandparents did the same thing. They created their own jobs when they came to America, started their businesses. Um, and that's the kind of vibrancy that immigration brings that unite, helps unite communities, that comes in and saves communities. Uh, you know, Alan, you're a big fan of New York City. I grew up in New York. And I remember the New York of my youth the 1960s and 1970s, New York City was a very dark place in in the context of economic gloom and crime and just this malaise that set over the city. You go to New York today and it is vibrant and exciting. And what are one of the key differences? Immigrants. Immigrants came back to New York uh, over the last 15 to 20 years. Obviously, better policing helps a little bit too, but that, that whole refocusing of bringing people back to a city, that's why you have cities all over America today, big cities like Cleveland and Atlanta and uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit that are seeking immigrants to come in because they bring energy and they bring jobs, not because they're bringing money in, because they bring ideas and a a desire to be successful.
2: Right. Welcome to California. Every state should sort of look at what California did or has done. Right, mm-hmm. And they're so far behind with having that type of technology that only Virginia is sort of second to that, right? But I think Detroit has seen the vision, right, on all aspects, even well, the even, even GOP
1: law. governor, it, a GOP yeah. governor who's hyper-focused on how good immigration is for his city. He's not concerned about, quote, enforcing the border. He doesn't need to put troops on the northern border to keep the Canadians out. He wishes he had that problem, the Canadians were flooding into Detroit to, take, to have jobs. Exactly. He's trying to, to track people there to create economic incentives and economic viability. We're going to right, take a break.
2: They, immigrants are saving Detroit, which... Are the Americans, basically. And, and, they will. Them.
1: and Cleveland wants that. Atlanta wants that. I chair uh, the Mayor, Mayor Kasim Reed's Welcoming Atlanta Committee, yep. trying to get um, uh, immigrants not only to come to Atlanta but to live in the city of Atlanta exactly. to bring their economic vibrancy and change the face of the city. We're going to take a break here, a final break here on America's Web Radio on the Immigration Army will be right back with Alan Orr.
3: Soy Charles Cook, jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado, con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración. Conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley. Y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8061. A las 404-816-8061. O visítenos en el internet www.immigration.net.
0: Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like.
1: Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Book Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866 286 6200. That's 866 286 6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net.
0: You're listening to America's Webradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to the final segment here on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Now, and I have to ask, your your background is so remarkably diverse. You're a black man from the South. You're gay. How did you get into immigration law?
2: Well, Actually, I've, immigration law found me. I was going to be an environmental lawyer because I wanted to clean up the environment. Because I'm much like you, I enjoy farming and yeah. trees and land, and I was related to that. And I took a an immigration law class at Howard Law, and I did quite well in it which led me to a job. Um, Someone was looking for someone with a financial background that did immigration, and I got introduced to the EB-5 program.
1: And this is back in the first iteration of EB-5, back when it was kind of the the Wild West, right?
2: And it made my heart leap because it sort of related to exactly what I was interested in, which was increasing the quality of American lives, right? Because the nexus of of the EB-5 is someone invests money, and it creates at least 10 jobs in some area. Well, I'm smarter than that because I know that when you create a company that creates 10 jobs, you create more than 10 jobs, mm-hmm. right? You create houses and living and market and you increase the quality of life and maybe their kids will be able to get an education and you revive areas. And our first focus was sort of on West Virginia, which isn't exactly Georgia, but Georgia was on the, on the spectrum for this company. And it just made me feel good that you know these companies were looking at ways of sort of employing Americans. And sure, I understand in the beginning that some of the jobs were medium-wage jobs. But I will tell you today, a lot of medium-wage jobs led to my success (laughs) as a lawyer, right? Sometimes just having the employment is enough to be able to pay the bills to sort of give you the platform to make the difference. In the African-American movement, you know, maids and janitors – and, and porters are the foundation that led to teachers, which led to doctors, exactly. and to attorneys. It might take or a generation
1: maybe. or two, but it's exactly what happens. Exactly. I, I just think you're back with I'm a big supporter this. of
2: the program. No need to say that. And it's also up for elimination this year. Or, or, <laughs> um, Re- renew Congress. it. They're, they're, they're obviously going
1: to renew it. The only question is what kind of crazy requirements they decide to put on it. Again, right. going back to your first comment about enforcement, about fraud. If I actually sat with the head of FDNS early on, he came to a meeting I was attending a small group of lawyers. He's At the time, the National FDNS office was maybe a dozen people. And he said something that I'll never forget. Some of us believe that there's fraud in every application. You just have to look hard enough to find it.
2: Exactly.
1: And so they want to find fraud in EB-5. I'm sure they will find fraud in EB-5. Now, Alan, when you and I talk about fraud, we're not using the, the worldwide term for fraud, are we? No, no. We use the Im- the crazy immigration definition of fraud, which could be a mistake, it could be an omission, it could be something super minor that's not really fraud, but a anything that you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's something you didn't know about. Any of that can be fraud in an immigration context. Right. It's right. one of the frustrating parts about immigration law is they treat everything as if it's uh, the death penalty, exactly. uh, even for minor mistakes. And there's 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 very little of Jean Valjean in immigration law and a whole lot of Javert, Exactly. to, to use my favorite play's metaphor. Now, Alan, in our last segment, I want to ask you about uh, President Obama's DAPA and D- expanded DACA program. Mm-hmm. Kind of going to get your time. We talk about this a lot because Judge Hannon has given us so much fodder, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the three-judge panel was fascinating to listen to. Um, and I don't know if you've listened to the oral arguments or not, but I I've but read
2: parts of it. And, and once again, it's all about strategy, right? It, it, they, that it, movement against immigration did exactly what the gay movement did with gay marriage: pick the right jurisdiction, pick the right judges, and the right timing.
1: They did a brilliant job in getting Amazing. this judge. I'm in awe. And really, they they lucked out with a brilliant panel as well. Exactly. I do. I do have to tell you, though, I listened to the oral or argument. I have a couple quibbles with the obama administration again on this issue first of all the lawyers arguing this case for the obama administration are from the office of civil rights right now i know this is a civil rights issue but if you don't know immigration law you are going to make mistakes like they made right. an immigration lawyer at the government would have known that the clowns at the service center are going to screw up work permits and not cancel those they're going to know they're not going to immediately stop those things. But Office of Rights guy is going to think, oh, the injunctions in place will be fine. You and I wouldn't have made that mistake. Right. Because we would have said, oh my gosh, remember March 11, 2002, not 9 11, 2001. The Fuji Ohada, it's how she lost her job, basically. Right. Uh, when they approved Muhammad work permit or his I 20 exactly. extension. We know they weren't going to stop. So, I, but here's my take I think we're going to get a decision on the Fifth Circuit. In the next two weeks, any time from this Friday up until June 1.
2: Right, I don't think it's going to much Friday. longer than that. It's, what is uh, your they, take they, on they, that? They had it drafted before it was heard.
1: Oh, no, no, no doubt about it. All the circuit courts do. So what do you think is going to happen?
2: Uh, I think there's going to be more. I mean, no matter what happens, here's the basis. There's going to be more litigation surrounding it. Okay. Right? Um, right. I am not a law school professor, just a, and I have a very general understanding of philosophy, which led me to an understanding of government, and which led me to this sort of struggle of understanding how a state <laughs> can challenge a president, right? Which mm-hmm. is sort of difficult for me to express to my clients, right? What is really happening here, right? Um, I feel that that the administration is not going to win here, and they're going to have to look for other relief. I, I agree with right? you. I agree. With I that. also feel that I don't know if this was the strongest power move by the Obama administration, right? I agree. Is it a show, or is it an action, right? Because if it's just a show, it kind of puts people in the right mindset that Obama did really try to do something, although he could have done something way before, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you get to the crux of it, what it comes down to with individuals is it's about the number of people, right? It's not about right or wrong, or is this a good thing to do? It's about people, the quantity of people is the real problem that we're talking about. And I fundamentally, Christianly don't understand that, right? <laughs> if something is okay and the right action to do and the right thing to do, it really shouldn't be re- related to the number of people that are involved exactly in it, right? right? I mean, it should, it should just be no this is a sound thing to do, this makes smart business or whatever. Um, so that's sort of where I sort of, you know, derail myself because immigration to me, much like ALA to me, it's not a commodity. Right? these are people right? and it matters and part of what matters about that in the end, not just about the people but also the perception that sort of matters right? that these people have done something that is so egregious and so unreal that every immigrant that came to this country did I mean that's really the foundation of our country every person that's here grandparents came in either that way voluntarily or they came in involuntarily, but either way they sort of forced their way in to be here to sort of fight for the American dream so that's you know, a side issue but then at the same time, this sort of group that's being sort of uh, detained and, and beaten, the administration is also sort of saying, well, you really shouldn't see an immigration attorney. Those people are not good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of what I want to change with AILA, is to make sure the message is out there that we are good. We are here to help. Immigration law is not a pro bono practice because we are also sort of changing lives. We will do pro bono work like anyone else does, right? But if I have a cavity, I know what a cavity is. I know how to fix it. They sell the stuff at CVS. I don't go and do that myself, right, because that's a long-term sort of change. So I believe with these individuals with issues that may seem small, right, if you make the wrong decision, sort of that we talked about before, now you've committed fraud. (laughs) Exactly, because you didn't put something down. So we just need to. Find that
1: balance, Oh, you right? wanted all of my children listed on there. I think you point out a good, a good point. Without immigration lawyers, there are millions of immigrants today who would not be benefiting from, for example, 245i. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
1: it is immigration lawyers that helped get 245i amplified. And that's just an example of dozens of other things just in the last 15 years that lawyers convinced the government to do either directly or through the courts mm-hmm. so immigration lawyers to be to be told by congressmen and by the president oh you don't need a lawyer this is so simple you'd be able to figure it out that's just crazy talk crazy. by somebody who does and I am a law professor by somebody who doesn't understand the law and how complicated and difficult it is exactly um, now I, I I take away I, I don't think the Supreme Court, is going to take jurisdiction of this appeal if the Obama administration appeals. Here's my key frustration. Why, on February 19th or the 21st, after the stay is put in place, didn't the Obama administration put a notice in the Federal Register? 30-day comment period. Interim final rule. They've done it before. Right. So now we're three months out from that, and he's done nothing about that. Where is the interim final rule? Is it right, because he doesn't want to make...
2: back to my initial point. Which, and, you know, and it doesn't... Hannon's little...
1: gone. Hannon's got nothing else at that point. Right. He's got nothing else. Now, I don't... I think the whole standing thing is a joke from the Hannon perspective. Okay. And I think the Supreme Court's decision in the in the um, mortgage banker's case eviscerates his, his claim that it has to be published in the Federal Register. But nonetheless, you've got two more judges, it looks to me like, after listening to oral argument that are going to buy that claim uh, from Judge Hannon. It's going to go back to Hannon for a trial, because he's going to have a hearing on this. He's going to put a fine... So I see this as the loss of the Fifth Circuit, which looks more and more likely going forward, as they're going to run out the clock on the Obama administration.
2: Well, I mean, as we talked about earlier, when Obama had both the ability to change everything, right, the message became we're working on healthcare because that's for everyone right. right and i'm sure with the change of the general uh, attorney and all these things that the focus has now been well we're working on you know us economy or we want to rise or there's just something issues so i i mean i do feel as you have so well expressed that immigration is on a back seat right and that it doesn't become a primary issue because the d's which you know for whatever reason sometimes are afraid of a fight um don't see the Republicans actually winning it either. So therefore, when there's no one really in play, right, you can always do a show, right? I mean, that's what, for me, Hillary Clinton did. I'm going to take it farther than Obama did. Well, how are you going to do that, exactly?
1: Exactly. What is your plan? I'm going to do that. great. Right? You're going to do that. You have really no legal way to do that.
2: All right. I mean, I know you Clintons are very good at creating things, but I need a little bit more.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and that, her statement, I think, was pure theater. Um, right. But I, I, you make a good point, though. Where was gay marriage on the radar of America ten years ago? Mm-hmm. And nobody thought, even five years ago, three years ago, it was becoming an issue. It wasn't on the agenda of the national parties uh, to have this or not. have It Just it was a minor issue. And yet it's in the press all the time. It's a key part of the Supreme Court decision co- turn coming up. And Court. how many people does it really affect, Alan?
2: Very small number. A
1: small number. You're talking about what, less than 10% of the American public? For, probably yeah, far I less. Say,
2: if, I mean, that's the general rule, 10% yeah. and of that 10%, right? And How yet, that's the number
1: married? of immigrants in America. It's yeah. 10%. So, yeah. what, immigrants, immigration lawyers, immigration leaders in bar associations like like ALA need to step forward and make this issue just as important. Exactly. Just as right. important.
2: Because if they don't know the issues, right? Because people, that's really it. You see for a week that you see kids being detained and parents being detained, and you sort of move away from it. Well, I feel that issue, and I think it's an important issue, but I also want you to see the companies, the H-1B slaughter that just happened, and the dance and the financial cost companies and lawyers of sort of fouling stuff and waiting and then not getting it, or offering someone a job in January for something they start in October. How unrealistic
1: that is. The system itself... Those are just
2: practical things that I think, if someone were able to just talk to the people, Right in a very Reagan-esque or clinton way, both of them work, wow. to sort of express what's going on, and then people would get it, and then they would change, because I think that's what's happened with marriage. Because the really thing that happened with marriage is, why are you really involved in that anyway?
1: <laughs> right? Well, exactly, and how does that affect you? Exactly. Uh, Alan, this has been a great show. We appreciate you being our guest. Good luck in the election. I've already voted for you and encouraged many other people listening to do so today. Well, thank uh, you so much. And have a great week. This is Charles Cook, the host of the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Until next week.